Futurecast. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Organizations talk about values a lot, but what do you do when your behavior doesn't align with your organization's values? We're going to talk about that as well as the trap of labeling people. I also get to introduce the concept of just culture and how that can apply to your day to day. And I get to do that while talking about an iconic episode of Deep Space Nine, the 11th episode of the sixth season, Waltz. A lot has happened in Deep Space Nine up to this point. We're in the throes of the Dominion War, and the Federation isn't doing great. We're going to lose this war. The important things for you to know heading into this episode are, the Dominion captured the station a while ago, and the Federation recently reclaimed it. In the battle to take it back, Dukat's daughter, Zial, was killed. Dukat was arrested and is to be tried as a war criminal, but while in custody, he suffered a mental breakdown. This episode begins with Dukat in the brig of the USS Honshu. Captain Sisko is on board as well, and they're taking him to Starbase 621 to stand trial for his alleged war crimes. And that's where we join them. Sisko visits Dukat in the brig. Dukat asks Sisko if he thinks he's guilty, and Sisko sticks to the point that in the Federation, you're innocent until proven guilty. He's all business, very formal, but he's still compassionate and tries to connect. I never got a chance to tell you how sorry I am about Zia. He was involved in her daily life on DS9 and misses her as well. As they talk about Zial, the ship gets hit by an attack and they go to red alert. The Dominion has attacked them and- USS Hanshu was destroyed this morning at 10.30 hours by an attack wing of Cardassian destroyers. Three escape pods and one shuttlecraft got away. The team at DS9 sends out the Constellation and the Defiant to search the area. But the Defiant is time constrained. They have to meet a team of 30,000 Federation troops to escort them. If they don't make that rendezvous, the transports will be destroyed and the troops killed. We aren't left in suspense for very long though. Dukat and Sisko are in a cave. Cisco's hurt. The left side of your body is covered with plasma burns. Holy crud, that has to hurt. Well, during the attack, Cisco is taken down in a plasma burst. Ducat helped get Cisco to his shuttle, found this planet, and crashed on the surface. Ducat was able to salvage the distress beacon and says he's activated it, but... Whose signal are you transmitting? Starfleet or the Dominion? Hmm? It's a general distress call, Benjamin. Whoever gets here first will find one comrade in arms and one prisoner. That's fair, isn't it? Ducat spends time foraging for firewood, food, and water while Cisco rests to heal. The rest of the episode is a lot of escalating back and forth between the two of them, but, but Ducat slowly slips into paranoia. It's really cool how they show this. Different characters pop up and taunt him. As it goes on, his grasp on reality slips further and further away. I doubt he'd still have the same respect for you if he'd heard you screaming and screaming. <laughs> no! 
Oh, yikes. Shoot. Dude's got a phaser on him, too. Well, this goes on for quite a while. Ducat makes food for Cisco, trying to build on their connection. But but why? I mean, longtime viewers like me would expect Ducat to just kill Cisco and move on. But he's trying to prove a point. And it's a point that Ducat has been trying to make over the entire series. He's, he's a good guy, right? He's just misunderstood. He's gone out of his way to try and protect people. Well, I hope they at least told you that my policies toward the Bajorans were most generous this time. Hmm. On the search, the Defiant is running out of time. They've rescued 12 people so far, which is great, but they still haven't found Cisco. Over time, while Ducat is prowling around the cave and the surface, Cisco notices that the distress beacon isn't actually transmitting. He's hurt, so it's a real challenge, but he activates it, covers it up, hoping that Ducat won't notice. And good news, the crew on the Defiant have picked up the signal. Commander, I'm picking up a distress signal. On the planet, Ducat is trying to get Cisco to tell him what he thinks of him. Cisco starts talking with Ducat, agreeing with his viewpoint. He gets Ducat to open up a little bit more, more and more. But in the back and forth, the cracks are definitely starting to show. <laughs> Leave us alone! This doesn't concern you! He yells at a vision of Kira right in front of Sisko. Sisko ignores it and keeps getting Ducat to talk. Let's pretend that the Major is not even here. The Defiant is closing in. I'm picking up two humanoid life forms on the surface. They beam them up and... We have the survivors on board. Two women, an ensign and a lieutenant. Yeah, they're upset and very aware that they're almost out of time. On the planet, Ducat checks the beacon and sees that Cisco's activated it. Furious, he whips out his phaser and blasts the beacon. And then, then he beats it into oblivion with a stick, right before he bashes Cisco into unconsciousness. But, but there's hope. I thought I picked up another distress signal, but now it's gone. They track after the beacon, but aren't sure they're going to have the time they need to complete a search. It's time. So Worf orders them to the rendezvous at maximum warp. With all pretense gone, Ducat and Sisko are letting it all hang out. And finally, after a monologue, a diatribe, really, about what a hero Ducat believes he is, Sisko gets the truth from him. Of course I hated them! I hated everything about them! I should have killed every last one of them! I should have turned their planet into a graveyard the likes of which the galaxy had never seen! This is huge. He's told everyone, even himself, that he loved them, that he was their benevolent savior. But now the truth is out. The truth is inside of us. Cisco knocks him out and escapes to the surface, but he's hurt. Ducat overtakes and attacks him. He steals and flies off in the shuttle, leaving Cisco alone on the planet. On his way out, Ducat signals the Defiant and tells them where Cisco is. They're able to pick him up just as they run out of time, but Ducat was able to escape. Recovering and talking with Dax, Sisko vows to protect Bajor and to take down Ducat. I fear no evil. What an episode. I'll tell you something. How much you like or dislike this episode has 
everything to do with your opinions on Avery Brooks and Mark Alimo's portrayal of their characters. Because literally, there is less than like eight, I don't know, maybe even less than five minutes of the episode with, with anyone else in it. Now me, I love them both. So that, along with the huge implications this episode has on the conclusion of this series, makes this one of my favorite Deep Space Nine episodes. Come to Quark's Crosses Fun. Come right now. Go, Quark. Run! In the 30th episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, Discovery, Choose Your Pain, I talked about the incredible performance review that Saru set up for himself. Now, there's a tool that enables you to do the same thing for yourself and your teams. For your free copy of this tool, visit starfleetleadership.academy and join the mailing list. You'll not only get a free copy of this incredible tool, but you'll also hear about other cool things going on with the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Visit starfleetleadership.academy today and get your free copy. Has this ever happened to you while you were watching Star Trek? Aaron, honey, pause, pause, pause. Why did Nog just say their first set of ears? I mean, it's weird that he didn't call them lobes. Okay, but first set? Do Ferengi lobes fall off and they grow new ones? Or are they supposed to grow in layers? I don't know. I've never heard anything about it. Ha ha ha. Wait, why do you think their ears would fall off? Is there some kind of animal that really does that? Listen to me, biologist and frequent episode pauser, Kelly Voss. And me, lifelong Star Trek fan and engineer, Aaron Strom. As we share the conversations we were already having at our house anyway. The Spinal Frontier comes out on your favorite podcatcher every second and fourth Monday. You can follow us at Spinal Frontier on Twitter and Spinal Frontier Pod on Instagram for updates. Okay, honey, you can press play. Hey, Brent, have you ever seen Babylon 5 before? Babylon 5? Mean that show from the 90s? Yep. No. You want to watch it for the first time? Let's do it. Babylon 5 for the first time. Not a Star Trek podcast. We are two veteran Star Trek podcasters watching Babylon 5 for the first time. We're searching for Star Trek-like messages in the series and deciding if we should have watched it sooner. You can find us on Good Pods, YouTube, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Babylon 5, for the first time, not a Star Trek podcast. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. Like I said, you have to really appreciate Avery Brooks and Marco Limo's approaches to their characters to dig this episode. It is literally the two of them alone in a cave, and they go on an incredible journey. Ducat slowly descends into a place of pure, unadulterated hatred and madness, while Cisco takes his time in dropping the pretense that he needs to be diplomatic, and then he just comes out swinging. What makes this work is how they take their time. It's all set up in the beginning, when Cisco is walking to see Ducat in the brig. As terrible as it sounds, there's a part of me that wishes he were dead. But that's a thought unworthy of a Starfleet officer. Like, there's a real dissonance between how he feels and how he decides to behave. And then he faces serious hardships before he finally drops the act and lets Ducat know exactly how he really feels. And then Ducat 
He's just completed an intensive inpatient stay. Do you want to say something to the group, Mr. McMurphy? To help begin healing from the trauma of losing his daughter. From go, it's obvious he's on a ledge. But then we get to watch his slow descent, helped along the way by visions of Wayun, Damar, and Kira. It was great. And I think one of the greatest things about it is that Ducat has been lying to everyone, even himself, about his feelings on the Bajorans for years now. This is the first time he's ever honestly said what he feels, even to himself. Like, the biggest revelation of this episode isn't that Ducat hates the Bajorans. Like, as viewers, we've, we've kind of always known that. The revelation is that now Ducat knows he hates Bajorans. This is, this is next level stuff right here. Now, the other key piece to this is the directing. You put two people on a dimly lit set and tell them to make TV, <laughs> eight times out of ten, you get a snooze fest. But not here. Rene Abergenois directed this one and really pulled the best, some incredible performances out of both Avery Brooks and Mark Alimo. Really, two absolute masterclasses here, one in acting and another in directing. But I can't quit with the praise there. No, the writing, the editing, and scene blocking was top-notch too. The scene earlier on where it sounds like the Defiant found them, but they end up beaming up two randos. <laughs> it was so well done. The crew was visibly deflated. And we were too as viewers. And then the final shot of Ducat. He's closing the shuttle door, staring down Cisco, And standing with him, Wayun, Kira and Damar. It's like the final exclamation point that dude is not okay and some bad stuff is about to go down. I think it's okay to give some you know little spoilers here, right? If you haven't watched yet and you don't want any spoilers, go ahead, skip ahead a little bit here. But I love, I love how they follow through on this. The next time that Cisco sees Ducat, they end up locked in a life or death fight with the fate of everything hanging in the balance. This is amazing storytelling here. Command codes verified. When I first watched this episode, I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about here. And then I started taking notes. And now I have to decide what from this very long list of concepts we're going to dive into. There's an incredible concept introduced in this episode that I'm going to dive into. It's called just culture, as in like justice based culture. It's in use in some medical and industrial practices, but I believe it has an application in management as well. I'm also going to talk about aligning your behavior with your values and the danger of labeling people and not acknowledging their complexity. But first, one of the coolest things Cisco does in this episode is show us exactly how to get to the meat of the matter in negotiations. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. In the 31st episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, TNG's Elementary Dear Data, I introduced an incredible and important book, Never Split the Difference, by former FBI negotiator Chris Voss. Never split the difference. In this piece of what I'll call required reading, Voss shares how he was successful as the Bureau's lead international kidnapping negotiator. He's broken down the skills necessary to negotiate when there are actual lives on the line. 
In the book, he offers a number of approaches and techniques that have proven time and again to lead to successful negotiations. One of those is mirroring. Mirroring is where you repeat what the person just said to you. Like, like the three, three-ish key words they just said, right? Like, these aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Used well, it helps build trust. The person feels heard and acknowledged. From mirroring, you can label what the person is feeling behind what they're saying. Cisco uses this beautifully with Ducat. I think you're right. You have been judged unfairly. I've judged you unfairly, but I think you probably had good reasons for everything you did on Bejor. He mirrors what Ducat has said, labels the emotions behind his words, and this gets Ducat to open up even more. So well done. When you mirror what they're saying and label the emotions, it allows you to calibrate questions that get you closer to the truth, like in this example, or towards an agreement or a solution in other use cases. An example many of us can relate to is buying a car. Let's say you can afford $20,000, but the ideal choice for you is sitting on a lot with an asking price of $25,000. After talking with the salesperson for a while, you tell them you're interested in buying it, and ask if they can come down on the price at all. The salesperson tells you what a great car this is and what a bargain they're already selling it at. Now, this response is meant to focus you on the value they're already offering. Many people might start arguing specifics at this point. There's a paint chip over here. Oh, I heard a rattle in the dashboard, you know, stuff like that. But if you go that direction, if you take their bait, you're not gonna get what you want. You're playing on their terms now. Now, I know what you're thinking, Stan. You're thinking, can I afford to buy a car like this? Huh, am I right? Seriously, Stan, you can't afford not to buy a car like this, and I'm going to make it easy on you. Instead, mirror them. Yeah, this car is a great bargain. Boom. No back and forth. You've just taken the quality of the car and the, the tit for tat off the table. Then, label what they're feeling. Sounds to me like you don't think I'm serious about buying this car. This labeling is important because it will almost always force them into a no response, which is, which is a good thing. They'll likely respond like, no, no, that's, that's not what I'm thinking at all. I just want you to know what a great deal this car already is. So you tell them you can only afford to pay 20,000 for the car. They may come back sticking to the 25 K or they, they might come down a little. You've established though, that you're serious. You haven't walked away and there's at least, at least a little bit of trust here. So now you calibrate a question based on what you know. You know that they think this is already a great value and they believe you're serious. So from here, you ask, this really is a great car and a real bargain. I can offer up to $20,000, that's it. So how am I supposed to buy this car from you? You want to buy the car, they want to sell it. And there are a few thousand dollars between both of you getting what you want. By asking what you're supposed to do, it basically forces a real conversation about what really needs to happen. No tactics, no gimmicks, just what matters. This can be done with your teams as well. Use mirroring to avoid arguing over the little details that don't necessarily matter. Label what they are feeling and then use all of that to calibrate questions to get you all to focus on the important matters at hand. Why waste your time talking about the limitations of Excel when you can focus on what the data will be used for? 
This all, this all becomes a lot easier to do when you share common values. But I've talked here before about having values for the sake of putting them on posters and screensavers and then actually living those values. And when your organization actually lives them, you will run into situations where your personal value set doesn't align with theirs. And this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean one is good or one is bad. It's just that they're different. And that misalignment can be minute, right? It doesn't have to be huge. You don't have to be diametrically opposed. Life, life often works in degrees and not just binary labels, right? More on that here shortly. When this episode begins through his captain's log, we get a glimpse into Cisco's brain as he identifies a misalignment between his values and the views and values of Starfleet. As terrible as it sounds, there's a part of me that wishes he were dead. But that's a thought unworthy of a Starfleet officer. What we end up seeing through the rest of the episode is Cisco working to align his behavior to Starfleet's values, and he's successful up until the point he gets smacked across the face and knocked out, which, which honestly, truly, I desperately hope doesn't happen to you in your work environment. But for those times that we're faced with this misalignment, you have to make a personal choice as to whether or not you're going to change your behavior because newsflash, your organization is probably not changing their values for you. I mean, they printed all those posters after all, right? Most of the time, this is probably pretty easy. Hopefully you haven't started working for a company that is so against your value system that every day is a fight. Dr. Evil. I spent 30 years of my life turning this two-bit evil empire into a world-class multinational. You work where you do because, at worst, you can tolerate the values they demonstrate. So once you've decided to stay, you have to be able to reconcile your behavior with their values in a way that doesn't compromise your integrity. Much like the mirroring and labeling I talked about earlier, you're going to identify the gap that's causing the misalignment and then label what you can still support within that. And then you base your behavior off of that. As an example, let's say, I don't know, as a hypothetical, your, your company has a value of honesty, but you're asked to withhold information from your team. Remember what Picard told us in the last episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, right? On TNG's The First Duty. But a lie of a mission is still a lie. So how do you lie when honesty is the value. The gap here is pretty clear, right? What can you support in it though? That's the question. At face value, I think I could support being honest about what I know. That's at least something. But can I take it further? If I'm being told to hold back information, can I, knowing what I know about the company's values and how I want to behave, can I, can I calibrate a question to the people asking me to not tell the whole truth? Well, I sure think I can. And the question I would calibrate to them is, can I tell them that I can't tell them everything? As a manager, you've likely run into this exact scenario. I like to joke that a key skill in promoting into higher level manager positions is being able to tell people no, and that you can only share what you can share and do those things in a way that's genuine and doesn't incite a riot. So in this example, I would want to say to my team, I've got some bad news. And unfortunately, I can't share everything right now because, you know, whatever the reason is. 
because because details are still being worked out. But here's what I can say. You drop that on a team, and I got to be honest, most everyone's going to be okay with it. Now, the flip side to that coin is that they're not going to be okay with you prefacing the statement. Well, in that case, I'd take you back to the step where you ask if you still want to work there. If you do, I'll take you a little further back and have you step through Chris Voss's method. Mirror, label, ask a calibrated question. Don't tell them the whole story. Ah, so you're concerned that they're going to panic and maybe even quit their jobs. Now, I believe in our value of honesty, and you're asking me to lie. So how am I supposed to do that and still uphold our values? What a powerful approach, right? Mirror, label, and ask a calibrated question. I have to say, there is so much more to what Voss's book offers. This is really a substantial distilling of what he offers. One more quick note on what it looks like to uphold and live your organization's values. In the episode, The Defiant is running out of time. They reach out to Kira to try and get a little more time, but she says no. The comms, though, are super choppy when she does. Can you hear me now? Okay, time for a quick quiz. Knowing what you know about Starfleet, who here in this next clip is living the values and who isn't? Hit me up on Twitter at SFLA Podcast and let me know. I couldn't understand a word Kira said. Too much interference. Looks to me like we're on our own. I could understand what she was trying to say. What about you, Chief? Did you understand? No, I couldn't understand a word. Sometimes, though, people won't do what the person that was upholding Starfleet's values did. Or they won't push back to the people telling them to not tell the whole truth to their team. Do you know why? Why they won't? Well, there are a lot of reasons why, actually. But one of the biggest fears, and one we see play out in this episode, is the fear of being labeled. No one wants to be seen as a troublemaker or to be perceived as a problem employee, and I, I totally get it. For the most part, the only labels most people want are things like awesome, important, critical to our success, and things like that. But, but there's even a danger. There's a danger in those labels as well. When we label someone, we put them in a tight, little uncomfortable box. Every interaction we have with them is going to be biased by that label. If you label someone, even subconsciously, as, I don't know, say, critical to our success, while that might feel good and validating, in the back of your mind, you're always going to expect this person to overperform, to pull a trick out of their sleeves and save the day. Essentially, in the name of being cool to someone, you're setting them up for failure. And this this happens. It really actually happens. We often think about the opposite, labeling people as bad things, but we, we do both. We label them as good and bad. In this episode, Cisco decides to label Ducat. He puts him in this tiny little box called evil. Nothing is truly good or truly evil. Everything seems to be a shade of gray. And then you spend some time with a man like Ducat. And you realize that there is such a thing as truly evil. Now, there is a whole deep dive we can do on the complexity of human beings and how no person is truly evil or even truly good. We're somewhere in between and sometimes several places in between and sometimes all that in the same day. It's one of the things I always appreciated about alignment in Dungeons and Dragons. Now, full disclosure, 
I haven't played since second edition, so I might be way off base here. But back in the early, early days of the game, there was a basic version that came in a box set and then an advanced version where you had to buy a small library of books. I loved both of them. But in the basic version, you were basically good or lawful, evil, chaotic, or in the middle, neutral. So simple, right? In this setup, Ducat is chaotic, and there you go. But it really is more complicated than that. I mean, just looking at Ducat, he really does do some good things in this episode. He saves Cisco, feeds him, even provides some medical care. Then, then he teeters off the deep end, threatens to genocide the Bajorans and gack Cisco in the face. Oh, oh, and then he calls the Defiant to tell them where Cisco is so they can pick him up? Yeah, there's a lot more here than just being evil. In the advanced game, AD&D, they added a qualifier to the lawful, neutral, and chaotic alignments. And that is good and evil. So lawful good is a person that believes in order and rules and will use them for good, while a chaotic evil person is all about chaos and just wants to watch the world burn. Some men just want to watch the world burn. And there are a lot of variations based on the lawful, neutral, chaotic, and good and evil. Now, I'd call Ducat lawful evil, which might just be the most evil of all of them. Like, he wants order. He wants rule. But he wants to be the one dishing out the orders and the rules and wants to use them for evil. On the other hand, I'd call Cisco chaotic good. He's not so much for rules, but he wants to steer the galaxy to a positive place. He gets that there are rules, right? But he's not going to hesitate to ignore them if that's the right thing to do. Maybe tomorrow we can play D&D. All of this to say that you cannot just label someone and be done with it. There has to be shades of gray or degrees. No person is always a thing, and we expect them to be. We are all in for a world of disappointment. Just culture. Have you heard of it before? It's pretty amazing. At a high level, it's the opposite of a blaming culture. It's where people are held accountable for intentional mistakes or misconduct, and systems are looked at for most every other problem. The European Union has even codified most of the aspects of it into their regulations. Regulation EC 376-2014 defines just culture as a culture in which operational staff or others are not held accountable for actions, acts, omissions, or decisions commensurate with their experience and training, but gross negligence, intentional violations, and destructive actions are not tolerated. When I think of it, I think of it in terms of what you ask when there's an incident. In a blaming culture, you ask, who caused this? Or, what did you do? In a just culture, you ask, what went wrong? Or, what in the system or process allowed this to happen? Here's an example based on a real scenario that, at the time of this recording, is still being tried in criminal court. A nurse in a hospital gave the wrong medications to a patient, and that error resulted in the patient's death. At face value, conventional wisdom would say that the nurse should be punished in some manner, right? But let's dive a little deeper into the details. This nurse was in the 13th hour of her 12-hour shift. Yep, you heard that right. And if you work in the healthcare industry, you know what I'm talking about. At this time of night, you should be asleep. 
But millions of people, just like nurse Paula Ashi, are awake and working. I average maybe four hours a day. She was asked, or told really, to cover another nurse's usual group of patients, so she was unfamiliar with them. When she went to get the meds dispensed for these patients, she made an error that resulted in the wrong medication being dispensed. The hospital did not have checks or balances in place, so she left, administered the medication, and shortly after, the patient died. So, blame culture. What did she do wrong? Well, she failed to follow what are called the five rights, right? Right patient, right drug, right dose, right route, and right time. And yeah, that's not good. Just culture? What went wrong? No checks at the med dispensary. Nothing enforcing the five rights. Taking another nurse's patients on without adequate handoff. And an exhausted medical professional. In the blame culture, the nurse would be punished based on the severity of the outcome. In this case, the person died. So the nurse was fired, arrested, and is now facing reckless homicide charges and a litany of abuse allegations. But what would have happened if the patient just got nauseous and then was okay? What, maybe, I don't know, a reprimand or a note in her file? Maybe a suspension and investigation at worst. But what does any of that do? to actually improve the situation, to be sure that other patients aren't hurt, that other nurses won't make the same mistake. And that's where just culture comes in. In just culture, the first step would be to be sure that the nurse was okay. I mean, a person they were responsible for just died. No one would be okay after that. And after that, once she's good, it's all about looking at the processes and systems. This horrifying incident would have led to better checks and balances, improved scheduling and care for nurses, and probably a number of improvements I can't even think of. And the nurse? Would she be punished? Yeah, honestly, probably not. Punishing her would do nothing to fix or improve the situation and would most likely make her and other nurses so averse to making mistakes in the future that they would second-guess every action they took and eventually become ineffective as professionals. As an added note of context to this story, the family of the person that died has testified that they forgive the nurse and that the patient, the person that died, would have also forgiven her. They said that it's not realistic or reasonable to expect someone working in the conditions that she was to never, ever make a mistake. So I brought all of this up because of one single line. Cisco says this little thing in his captain's log that starts the episode. He says, He lost an empire. He lost his daughter. And he nearly lost his mind. Whatever his crimes, isn't that enough punishment for one lifetime? And it immediately made me think about just culture. Has Ducat been punished enough? Did the Federation's approach of arresting him and standing him for trial do anything to fix the situation? And that's what you have to ask yourself. When an incident occurs at work, do you wonder what the person did wrong or do you look at the process and the systems? Sticking with the medical field here, a Johns Hopkins study from 2016 says that roughly 250,000 people die each year due to medical errors. A U.S. Department of Health and Human Services study says that one in seven patients in a Medicare hospital setting experiences a medical error. Is this all just 
people making mistakes? <laughs> I have a very, very hard time believing that. One of the less terminal medical errors are billing errors. The Johns Hopkins study estimates that these cost Americans some $210 billion a year. And yeah, that's billions with a B. You might have heard people talking about universal health coverage, but what does it really mean? But they also say there are over 70,000 diagnosis codes and some 71,000 procedure codes available, and that, and I quote, makes errors nearly inevitable. These are system errors. These are not people acting maliciously or incompetently. So back to you. Something's gone wrong. Is the person you work with being malicious? Are they incompetent? And if they are incompetent, is it because of the training they were provided or, or more likely, not provided? I love Just Culture because it acknowledges the human doing the work and the inherent flaws in our systems and processes. If you're on the fence here and you still think there's value in blaming and punishing people, let me ask you this. How's the current system of dinging employees for mistakes working out for you? Is everyone snapping into line and doing perfect work because mistakes are scrutinized and punished? And I know, I know what you're thinking. I've been a manager for a long time, right? It's not punishment, it's discipline or a work plan or some other buzzwordy thing that the industry's made up to disguise the word punishment. And if you don't believe that, come back to me after you're in the corrective work action meeting towards you and tell me that doesn't feel like a punishment. But seriously, Take a long, hard look at how well addressing human error has worked for you. And after you've done that, I'll be eager and excited to welcome you to the beautiful world of Just Culture. I want to read a five-star review that just came through on Apple Podcasts. This one from ThinkBlue78. They say, I'm so pleased that I found this podcast. Very happy that their explanations were so relevant to my organization. Even though I've never seen the Star Trek episode that was referenced, it didn't matter because the truths that were communicated are universal. Excellent addition to anyone's podcast feed. Looking forward to more. Thanks, ThinkBlue78. Hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review as well. And there's a good chance I'll read it right here on the podcast. I'd also love for you to join me online. I'm on Twitter at SFLA Podcast, and you can follow me on most of the other social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T. as in two women, A-K-I-N. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. It's been a long time since we've gotten a Discovery episode, and here we are. The eighth episode from the first season. And, oh, oh, wow. I know I'm going to say this wrong. Um, Civis Pachum Parabellum. I remember this was one of the early Discovery episodes I really enjoyed. I think, actually, it's the first episode with, like, an away team where they go to a planet and do stuff. A Star Trek staple that had been missing in the series up to this point. And, if I'm remembering correctly... We get to explore the classic Star Trek question of the needs of the many versus the needs of the few or the one. So, until then, let me try a little more Latin. Ex Astra Scientia!
Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast Networks include Ruby for Female Empowerment, The Best Business Network, and GPN for Geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Electric acid.